Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. I'd like to introduce Jeff Tambroni to the Phil Lacrosophy podcast. Jeff is the head coach at Penn State. And Jeff, I uh, hope you're doing great. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jamie. I'm excited. Before uh, we get started, um, just uh, give me uh, an update on uh, how the fall's going and how the squad's looking. You know, the fall's, I think it's, it's gone well. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that you can evaluate uh, the way you're growing or the way you're competing. And I think you know, part of this, and it's a big part of it, the platform of your culture, you know, how well your guys are responding to um, the locker room and the camaraderie in that locker room and the chemistry of that locker room and with, with a new group of freshmen coming in, how well they're transitioning and, and with a new group of seniors, how well they're taking over as leaders. So, you know, a lot of that stuff, most fans, most parents, most administrators won't see. That's the kind of stuff that we see and try to develop a lot in the course of the fall has nothing to do with X's and O's, has nothing to do with um, kind of tactically how we're going to go about competing and playing against people. But the, the strength of that foundation we've found uh, to be the most important. So I'd say in that regard, things are going well. We've got a great group of freshmen transitioning very well. And I think our seniors, it's a bigger group of seniors. And, you know, they, they've worked hard through our leadership meetings to try to figure out what it's over a team and they're kind of learning as they go and then and then on the field I would say we're doing um well we got a lot of work to do obviously there's a long way to go in the fall but uh it's a, it's a nice group of guys returning and uh I think they're, they're a hungry group and and somewhat experienced group so we, we've been encouraged by how hard they're working and and how focused they've been it's awesome. You know, I've talked to a lot of coaches and, um, you know, so many of them will just talk about culture um, as the, the, the thing that they almost worry most about. And you just referenced it the same way that a lot of guys have. Uh, but tell me, like, how do you develop this leadership that you're referring to out of the seniors to be able to get these, you know, freshmen, sophomores to begin to follow, but also to learn how to be leaders in and of themselves? You know, I think it, it starts with an education. I think that there needs to be an appreciation for your roots. I mean, I think the true culture comes from a connection back to um, those who played before you. And as I think we, we've needed to do our job as coaches to make sure that these guys can appreciate the jersey that was handed down to them before they got there and talk a lot about the history. And we try to do that during the first weekend of school. So we take our guys on a retreat um, during that first weekend and, and try to talk about the history of our program. That's where we start. Um, and any identity pieces that we use, we use a lot of identity pieces uh, so that these guys, guys can connect back to uh, those guys who played before them and the history of Penn State lacrosse. Um, and then I think it's an appreciation of the actions that are going to connect back to that. And, you know, there's one thing to talk about it or to read about it. And then there's another thing to commit to the actions that are necessary uh, to going back to those roots and that appreciation for those roots. So we, we've, We've spent a lot of time with that, a lot of time with our own history, a lot of time with our connection with our own history. We've tried to, to create that connection. Our alumni are, are extremely involved, and that's a really good thing for us. We've got a wonderful group 
large group of committed alums and, and they've done a wonderful job of coming back and connecting with our guys and they're committed to our process as well. And then throughout the course of the year, we meet every week. We meet weekly um, with a smaller group. It's a leadership committee that we meet with every week, Tuesday morning, seven o'clock. We meet with this group and try to come up with various ways um, to present what it looks like to lead. So it's, it's incumbent upon us as coaches um, to create a leadership lab of sorts to talk with these guys if we expect them to be great leaders. Um, some of that's through our own experience about our own story. So we try to pass that down. Some of it's through others, you know, whether it be a video or an article that we'll, we'll uh, present to these guys and just talk about scenarios before they come up to just get these guys thinking about how they would want to respond as they're going to represent a program much, much larger than themselves. So it's an ongoing process. It's not something that we can communicate in the weekend or communicate just in an hour when we meet. It's an ongoing process about the lifestyle that we're, we're going to ask those guys to live, but we're also going to ask our guys to live uh, here in the office as well. You know, the Philocrosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 video assessment tool. You know, it's you think about building culture and building, you know, having a, um, a team culture, and, and sometimes you feel like we've got a great culture. And you hear people talk about programs, you know, that have a great culture. Um, but it seems like, you know, that's awesome if you have a great culture, but it's so fleeting, right? I mean, if you don't work at it every single day, you know, it's, it's probably, you know, really hard to maintain it. And, and, uh, so, you know, I know you just kind of said this, but are there some of the things that you do to try to maintain that? I guess, you know, I'm sure there's some actions that you take. You refer to some of them. You know, we, we talk a lot about, we have three core values that we want our guys to really focus on on a daily basis, relentless work ethic, compassion, which is that that's at least from my standpoint, that's the key, just their, their willingness to care about people other than themselves and a willingness to compete without excuse um, and a willingness to compete uh, without complaint. So if we can kind of focus down on three things, three main categories, of what we want our guys to think about on a daily basis when they come around the building, when they're in the locker room, when they're on the field. And that's a good start, but it's also an example that we have to live as coaches ourselves and that we ask those guys as leaders to also live. And, you know, I say this a lot in the recruiting, on the recruiting trail, and I say it to our guys a lot. There is, to your point, there is a, a constant development development that needs to be put into culture and you're never going to say your culture is perfect and you know one of the things that you and I share just from our relationship with you is we we are parents you're parents of, of the three kids that are growing up and there's never a time that you're going to say my son or my daughter is perfect um, you're going to constantly work on their development as young men or as young women um, and you realize that every day that you get up there's a you know there's another ingredient that needs to be added into that mix and if you don't, you're losing an opportunity to, to strengthen that culture, strengthen that bond. So we realize that it is a day-to-day in the action items that we take on um, as coaches and, and as seniors that we try to impress upon them are going to be imitated by our younger guys. So if, if we can connect back to the core values that are going to connect back to the history of our program, if we can live a lifestyle versus communicate a lifestyle, but live a lifestyle uh, that mirrors those values, um, we think we're going to be in a pretty good place. But like you said, it, it's an ongoing process, never going to be perfect. Um, but it's certainly worth something fighting for on a daily basis. Yeah, no doubt. And another thing we have in common is uh, we've got two awesome wives that uh, 
we're best friends in, in each other's weddings, which is pretty cool. Not many people know that, but uh, they, uh, Shel Frades and Sarah Hoffman were buddies back in the Yale days. Where were you at that time on uh, those early when she was at Yale? Were you, uh, you weren't even out of school yet, I think, in 1991. Yeah, Nin 1992 graduated back at Hobart back in the day as, as a coach in those early years as well. But I know those are years that my wife will talk about frequently about how she enjoyed those those days back with you and Sarah back in the Yale day. Plenty of skiing trips, plenty of fun. So Yeah, no doubt. Well, that's a perfect segue. Um, will you just tell us a little bit about your coaching journey um, and um, – you know, and, and, and influences and influencers you, you've coached for and played for really some of the best. Um, and, and I think that the listeners would love nothing more than to hear a little bit about that, starting, you know, with, you know, maybe Coach Becerra, maybe before that, but you've really played for some of the best ever. And to hear some tidbits about what you learned and what you took and what you now apply from that would be awesome. <clears throat> Uh, you know, I appreciate that segue, and I would just say one of the things that I look back at my career is, and it's it's a it's a consistent. This is a daily basis. Is gratitude. Um, I had the great fortune to be around some of the greatest mentors, some of the most transformational people, uh, male role models in my life through you know the sport of lacrosse, and you know as far back as I can remember, I never want to do to do anything professionally other than coach lacrosse. That was always my goal. As a young man, there's never been something in my life that I thought, man, maybe if I change, um, you know, the venue professionally, this will be good for me. It's always been coaching. And, and I attribute that 100% um, to the gentleman that I grew up in the same town and played for in high school, Coach Masser, uh, transformational coach in so many ways, believed in us as young men, which meant that he held us to an extremely high standard about what it meant to be a part of a team and a part of a community. And, you know, I will always look back with, with gratitude for the sacrifices that he made. Just, just retired this past uh, spring after 46 years of coaching. And, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest high school coach of any sport. Uh, so that's where the platform began. And, you know, it got me thinking when I was looking at colleges, and, and part of my college search was to try to find someone that had that same transformational response to his players. And he was in a different kind. But when I went and played for Hobart, Dave Urich was, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a big influence in that regard. And a big reason why I wanted to go to Hobart because he was a transformational coach, uh, more parental in his approach as a coach, um, knew when to have fun, knew when to be serious. Um, I've never been around a guy that got so much out of his players, um, you know, regardless of the situation. So, you know, having an opportunity to play for him for a year at Hobart, again, changed my perspective about what it meant to be a coach. And, and then B.J. O'Hara took over and, you know, was a wonderful role model, both as a player and as a coach when I took over after, after graduating from Hobart, worked for him for three years. And, you know, and then, like you mentioned, when I was getting into coaching, you know, that was a you know, a, a big piece of, of where I wanted to go. It wasn't necessarily the brand of the program. It was who was always going to have a, a chance to work with or alongside. And, you know, looking at some of those names like Dave Cottle, Dave Petromala, and some of the assistant coaches that I've had, like like Ben DeLuca and Kyle George Alice and Peter Toner now. I mean, I've, I've really had the great fortune to learn from some of the game's absolute greatest coaches and look back with great gratitude for each of the lessons that I've learned some um, in, in many ways. But I will say this, the, the one thing that I've learned throughout my, my journey um, and sometimes the hard way is that I've just needed to be myself as much influence as I've had from, you know, 
the days of Coach Masser or Coach Urich or the days with Coach Petromala or Coach Cottle, when it came right down to it, when I finally had my first opportunity to be a head coach, the one thing that I learned, um, and like I said, sometimes in a very difficult manner, but sometimes in a very positive is when it comes down to grabbing your own whistle and being in charge of your own program, you can take every influence that you ever had, and we should, and I've learned that in such a positive way. But at the end of the day, our guys are going to respond to me, Jeff Tambroni's personality. And if it wasn't authentic in my delivery, um, then it was not going to come across with any product, any level of productivity. So as much as I'm grateful for all of that those guys have done, because each and every one of those guys has sacrificed so much for me um, and contributed so greatly to my career as both a person, probably more important as a person, as a coach. Um, I've found out that you just take those things and whatever you felt like is most authentic to your journey or your drive, you need to kind of put it in that pot and then pass that same thing down like those guys did with me to the assistant coaches and players that are now uh, wearing the same brand and same uniform that we are today. Totally agree. And, and it's just, it's just this uh, myriad of information that you get, but you have to still be yourself. Um, and that said though, you know, we all, everything we do, we've taken from somebody else pretty much. And then we just do it together, you know, in our own way, like you said. Um, but can you, can you think of stuff that you, you know, that you, that you to this day have taken, you know, uh, you know, whether it be a drill or a technique or, a, 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 or even an emphasis from, and that could be on the field or off the field, <clears throat> each of the guys that you've sort of been through, I mean, just something that pops into your head. Yeah. I would say looking back at coach Masser. um, belief would be the first one. And, and when I say belief is t tell young men what they need to hear when they need to hear it, not necessarily what they want to hear. And, and at a very young age, very impressionable age, 16, 17 years old, um, you know, we believed far greater than we, than we thought, even in our, our, of ourselves about what it meant to sacrifice and be a part of something far greater than we could have ever accomplished um, individually um, and that meant sacrificing socially, you know, with, with the use of alcohol, it meant sacrificing in school in terms of never being late, never missing a day of a class. Um, and it also meant sacrificing who we were as individuals to be a better team. Um, he was fairly strict, I would say extremely disciplined back in the day. And I've learned a lot about uh, kind of my day-to-day -day approach, uh, what I wanted to look like, but what I wanted our teams to look like. Um, but I would find that to be a drastic difference in terms of the approach that Coach Yurk took when I got to college. Um, his was much more um, parental. You know, I found him to be more fatherly in his approach. Uh, there wasn't the same amount of uh, discipline in his approach. It was, there, there was a, a, a far greater connection in personality. And I think he invested in us differently. Both had a major impact on my life as, as both a person as a coach. Coach Yurik was um, more compassionate in his approach. You, you felt extremely comfortable going to him. There was no intimidation factor going to Coach Yu. Um, like I said, he was very fatherly. And, and, and becoming approachable as a coach became something that I took away from Coach Yurik. And, you know, unlike where in high school, um, the product was, you know, the proof was in the pudding. We won a lot of games. And, and in college, Coach Yurik did the same thing. His was much more fun. You know, there was a, a major emphasis on a sense of humor, um, a sense of enjoyment, and a smile in college. And I think that was a little bit different than it was in high school. But I thought both were extremely productive. And again, both very authentic to the personalities of those yeah. who delivered. Um, 
Coach Cottle, you know, his his ability in the offensive end and as a tactician and the game lacrosse, I just found that to be amazing. I've learned so much about X's and O's, the way he breaks down um, a day-to-day practice, um, a certain skill, a certain drill was just absolutely incredible. The detail of his description, um, you know, being able to kind of break down each and every little step uh, from an offensive perspective or the way a defense plays was was masterful and you know just tactically I learned a lot from the way he went about his business I'm not sure there are many people um who know as much about the game as as coach Cottle is you know as his knowledge of of the game offensively in particular is just incredible um so learned a ton about just the x's and o's pieces there and then Dave Petromao and I think he would this would probably surprise a lot of people. I think his perception, um, either from the lens of a TV camera or if you were just to come out and watch, you know, from, from the stands about what happens on the sidelines of the game, one of the most compassionate coaches I've ever been around. I think, you know, when, when the camera is off or the practice ends, um, learned a lot about being able to get after your, 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 your players and hold them to an extremely high sense of accountability and an extremely high standard but also love them, uh, love them as human beings and as young men. And, and nobody did a better job of putting their arm around someone or calling or texting someone or writing a letter to a guy on the team that maybe had a tough day because they were in a, uh, you know, at the wrong end of a, of a description about what should be done or what shouldn't be done on a practice field. And, you know, learning how to truly be a professional in this sport and and treat these guys with an extremely high standard, but at the same time, be a compassionate and loving coach. Um, a lot of that would come from Coach Petromal. So just some incredible lessons through my lifetime that I still value and still look back on with great gratitude. I got a funny story that I've told you before, but I'd love the listeners to hear this because it's, it's a story about one of your former players um, and uh, one of my former employees who became a great friend, Rocco Romero. Great uh, player who graduated college. It'll be 10 years ago, right? He was class 09. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, unbelievable guy. Uh, down, he's the uh, ops guy down in Virginia right now. But I remember when we hired him at 3D, you know, I went over to his cubicle one day, a couple weeks in, and I look, I'm like, is, is that a picture of Coach Tambroni uh, pinned <laughs> up on your cubicle? <laughs> And he like smiled. He's like, "Yep." And I just thought, you know, how many, how many guys, you know, have uh, former players with their picture? How many coaches have a former player with their, you know, I mean, maybe on a dartboard, but definitely not just sort of like right next to their desk. Um, but uh, anyways, you know, so you must learn a few lessons too about had that impression on uh, on Coach Romero. But uh, yeah, it's really, really all really cool stuff. But I had to tell that story because that's awesome. That's awesome. It's really an amazing story. And he's, a, he's an awesome dude, you know. And, and I, I hate to, uh, you know, um, bring up uh, uh, the 2009 in some ways because it was an amazing season that had like a, 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 an end to it that was – that made me sick to my stomach. And I wasn't even like <laughs> – I didn't have anything invested in it. Um, and uh, I literally I probably – other than my own certain games, I might have never felt sicker. Um, you guys had done such an amazing job, so hopefully you'll be able to get back to that uh, arena soon. And uh, but, anyways, uh, you've really you know built amazing programs at Cornell, and now you're bringing it along at Penn State. Let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about philosophy, since that's the name of this podcast. It's my lacrosse philosophy podcast. Um, 
talk to me a little bit about your philosophies on player development. We've talked a lot about culture now, <clears throat> just about like actually developing players, the skills and athleticism and all that. Yeah, I, th I think the first thing you want to do is just understand that everyone develops at a different time frame. That we we don't try to pin people into this this box of player development, so that when they come in there, the expectation is that. Um, you know, you're going to progress from step A to step B after the first month and, you know, go from B to C after the first year. Um, I think the beauty of what we do is that we're in the people business. We're constantly recruiting to find out um, which families or which young men connect with our philosophy or want to partner with what we're uh, going to propose for them in terms of their four-year journey. And then when they get there, they're all different in their development phases. Some have already developed you know, during their sophomore, junior, and senior year and come uh, fairly mature in their thought process or ideas, are also physically fairly mature. Um, and some take a couple of years. Like, you, you know, you referenced Rocco Romero. Rocco Romero is a guy that took probably two, two and a half years before he truly developed in terms of his uh, mindset to truly want to invest in, in things on a daily basis. And, and physically, he really uh, took a little bit of time to, to develop as well. And played his best lacrosse at the last month of the season and played as well as we would have ever imagined. So I think when we step back as a father, uh, we try to put that into our quote unquote development plan. Um, our development plan probably has more to do with these guys as young men than it does as players. I mean, uh, there's a binder on my desk right now. We, it's, it's titled IDP, the individual development plan that, you know, we tend to have meetings with our guys about, their families about their academic um, endeavors or goals about their professional endeavors or goals. And I think it's important for us to, to connect there first uh, so that there is a development of trust between the two of them before we can ever, ever go out and coach these guys on the field. And, um, and, and then the stuff on the field comes a little bit later, the development plan about how we're going to treat these guys as young men um, on the field. And I think that on the field stuff, everybody kind of takes on a, a journey of their own and a speed of their own. So I think it's important that each coach connects with somebody or a group of guys in that regard. And um, for us, um, you know, that, that, that process has to unfold and, and we have to make sure that we're taking care of that, that process more personally than professionally. So the development plan that we try to follow is more about building relationships. You know, I think Joe Madden said it best for uh, the Chicago Cubs when he talked about, uh, you know, part of his philosophy as a coach when he went from Tampa Bay to Chicago, and that's exactly what his trend was. It was, it was get these guys to um, connect um, to one another, whether it was the coaching staff to the players, the players to one another, um, build the trust by your actions, make sure that your actions were going to speak loudly about what you were communicating with those guys, but that you were going to be reliable as a mentor and as a coach. And then at that point, you would be able to lead, lead and coach them, uh, skills and drills on the field, but also ask them to do things of sacrifice for their, for their teammates, both in the locker room and on the field. And that's kind of the development plan that we'll try to follow and um, recognizing that these are all just young men trying to figure things out as they go through a, a very impressionable time of their lives. Uh, I think that's also an important piece as well. What's your, what's your offensive philosophy? You know, I say this a lot to our guys. I mean, I, I think best shot available, um, regardless of time, is, is something that I, I think when the ball comes across the, the midline, we should follow straight through. Um, we don't concern ourselves so much um, with how much time has gone off. And I know that there is a philosophy in a game management that goes into this throughout the course of, you know, each quarter or the, 
each half or each game. There's going to be moments. So nothing that I say will be 100%. This is flat line. There are moments that, that each game needs to be managed a certain way. But we try to get our guys to follow into this ADP. We call it ADP. That the angle of each shot, the, the distance of each shot, the placement of each shot has to have a connection to success. So if you're shooting with lower angle or um, further distance, your placement better be pretty good. So you got to figure out what kind of a shooter are you. Are you a very accurate shooter? Um, and sometimes when your, your angle is very good or your distance is very short, maybe your placement doesn't have to be as good. You can just be more of a volume shooter. Um, but at the end of the day, can we, can we provide an offense uh, that's going to put us in a position to shoot high percentage shots inside the ADP, inside with good angle? decent distance and good placement um, enough throughout the course of the game to be successful. That has little to do with time. So I'm not a big fan of, of people talking about how long you take off the clock. I think if there's a good shot available with a long stick, with a short stick, with an offensive or defensive personnel, I think you got to take it. Um, and I think you got to live with uh, the results that happen. I also think you got to develop a philosophy um, in the offensive end that incorporates way more of the five guys off the ball. How can you provide them with a role or a purpose within your offense? Um, there's so much uh, attention and drills and skills to develop the on-ball. I think the one thing that, that gets lost in the shuffle here is how you can develop structure and options for those guys off the ball that they can then live with. Um, we don't want to be a dictator in terms of the way the offense is run, but we want to create some options, four or five options, every time the ball moves off the ball so that we as coaches are not yelling move. Um, we can actually provide some direction about where to move, how to move, and how to communicate those moves. So um, the philosophy off the ball has to be extremely sound, um, knowing that there's five guys without it and, and every touch or every exchange. So um, we want to play an up-tempo style. Uh, we want to shoot with the best shot available, regardless of how much time has gone off the clock. And we really want to incorporate an offense that's going to uh, include six guys on there and stress more about what's going on with the five guys off the ball and the importance of teamwork there um, than we do with the guy with the ball. So for, for, for high school coaches out there that are listening, <clears throat> you know, it sounds like shot selection is another way of sort of saying it, but like, you know, you're going to live and die by your shot selection and, and uh, making sure the right people are taking the right shots from the right angles and distances. And everybody kind of knows, knows their abilities there. You combine that with some, some good dodging and some great off the ball and, 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 and you have a, a rest, a general big picture recipe for success. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it's a pet peeve of mine and it's just, again, it goes back to philosophic, you know, philosophy. Like, you know, it, it drives me crazy when people, you know, talk about shooting the ball too soon in the course of an offense. And I don't think your shots that have anything to do with the shot clock, you know, now that we have a shot clock, obviously you got to get it off before the 82nd timer runs out. But I think in general, um, who's to say you can't develop a great shot first five seconds into the game. And if he takes a shot and the ball gets saved, let's not talk to this young man about not shooting. Let's talk to this young man about how to do a better job of, of uh, being a little bit more productive when he shoots. Um, and it drives me crazy when I hear that, um, we've just had the ball for five seconds or 10 seconds. That will not be in our discussion. Now, again, there, is, there are times throughout the course of a game where you have to manage yeah. uh, possessions because of the way your defense is just played or because of the score or because of the situation. Um, but I would say 85% of the game should be a free flow and, and guys should have the green light to shoot shots as long as 
the angle, distance, and placement right. are in place. And so we spent a lot more time talking about um, the actual shot that we developed versus the, the outcome of the shot. I think if you spend more time talking about the outcome, um, whether or not the ball went in, I think you're working in reverse order. So that, that's what we try to do with our guys. Hopefully that creates more confidence yeah. when they play. So they're not worried about the clock. They're just worrying about kind of the product of their, of the offense and what kind of a shot it created. I hate it when people talk about, Oh, we had so many shots too, you know, and it's like, you know, Oh, we're, we're going to take this, we're going to shoot four shots. And I heard someone recently just say, Oh, we're trying to get four shots off in, in a 30 second man up. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, how about ADP? You know, <laughs> <laughs> oh, one goal yeah we need one goal not four shots yeah um you talked a little bit about the philocrosophy podcast is brought to you by jm3 sports go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the jm3 video assessment um, tool you talked a little bit about the importance of dodging what what, what would you say your dodging philosophy is because i think that a lot of you know i have mine in, uh, and, and I think there's a lot of kids out there that think about dodging and they kind of think about like breaking ankles more than anything. But I'm curious to hear your opinion on like the big picture of like, you know, if a kid wants to get recruited and play division one lacrosse, he kind of has to be able to dodge, even though we love to recruit those off ball guys and the smartest guys and the skill, most skilled guys. But in the end, usually you're kind of judged by that. What's your take on, on developing that and sort of your, you know, opinion on the most important elements. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And, yeah, I do think, you know, I get asked this quite a bit when it comes to the biggest difference or biggest challenge going from high school to college. And I do think that's one of them in, a, in an elimination skill. Can you eliminate your defender, especially if it's a long stick? And, you know, when, you, when it goes to recruiting, there are very few guys out there that can eliminate a defender. There's you know plenty of guys that work a lot on their shooting. Um, and can do certain skills within the course of the offense. But there are very few guys out there that can eliminate, especially when it comes to eliminating a long stick. That's, that's a skill that um, certainly requires certain athleticism, certain balance, um, and time required to do so. So that would be something that we will definitely stat when we go out and, and spend time in the summer recruiting. Um, how many times does each dodge yield an elimination or a slide if it's a neutral where he dodges and, and he can't draw a slide or can't create a shot over and over and over again regardless of how fancy his stick may be or how skilled this particular player will be he'll he'll, he'll have a hard time in college fitting into an offense um you know if he can't at least eliminate a short stick let alone um you know hopefully someday a long stick so that would be a big piece of it for us I think it comes down to two things, really, angle and balance. You know, I think one of the, um, the guys that I've coached that does it the best um, or that's, you know, I, I would take example from because I think he just has an innate um, way about the way he goes about his business with the bonus stick is Rob Pinnell. Uh, be a great guy for everyone just to study on film. I've, I've never been around a guy uh, that's done such a great job with just keeping a defenseman off balance based on his movements. Um, so I think, you know, athleticism certainly comes into play. And I think you want to take great angles uh, to become a great eliminator or a great dodger. Um, you know, the 45 degree mark is a great one on each side, both behind the goal, left and right, 45 degrees away. Um, and then the same thing up top so that you can, you know, either sweep across the middle or go down the alley with, with better angle to shoot the ball and finish. But when it comes down to the essence of actually being able to dodge, I think keeping a defenseman off balance does not require 
uh, tremendous athleticism. I think you have to have some, you have to be athletic, um, but a presence to know change of direction, change of speed, um, in the essence to keep a guy off balance, to just create um, minor advantages, um, to, to try to take advantage of just opening up your hands or opening up your body to be more effective. Um, that's the essence of a, of, of a successful Dodger. And if I were to point to one guy that I've ever been around as a coach or as a player that does it the best, um, you know, Rob Pinnell, he, he will consistently change his direction and change speed to keep defensemen off base so that they can never catch a beat. And he's a good athlete, a very good athlete. So I think he has the God given abilities. Um, but I've never seen someone use his balance or his change of direction speed so well to keep his opponent um, off balance to provide him an opportunity to constantly have his hands free to get his body in a position where he can run by and either shoot or feed, depending on the situation. Yeah, and he has such a great repertoire. I mean, he, he, he will use, I don't know, three, four, five different sort of hesitation moves, you know, during the course of even, you know, a, well, a possession, you know, maybe even yeah. a dodge. He has a shuffle, yeah. skip hesitation, a one-foot hesitation, mm. a big rocker hesitation. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah. I really think hesitations are, you know, one of the more undertaught, you know, parts of the game. And everyone thinks about change of direction, but it's the hesitation, you know, that sets up your change of direction because you can get people to try to overrun. You know, if, if, if when you do a stop and go, they got to try to catch up and that's how they end up. They're over pursuing. And, and you watch it. So many of his change of directions are kind of set up by a stop and go before his rollback. Yeah. It goes back, you know, I tell you, it goes back to like summer camp, change of speed, change of direction. I mean, these, these are age old theories about how to create better Dodgers. And, and if you're a great athlete, like a Billy Miller, who I played with back at Hobart, you can just catch the ball, square up your shoulders and run as fast as you can at a defender and get to the goal. And, you know, if you're like the rest of us, you're going to have to utilize those changes of what you say, changes of speed or changes of hesitation. And I would definitely agree. There is an essence, um, to create in a yo-yo, so to speak, where you can pull a defenseman towards you and then take advantage of the angle that he creates yeah. or vice versa um, that is truly unique to the great Dodgers of this world. And some of it is athleticism for sure. Uh, but a guy like Rob and some other guys that handle the ball like like they do, a John Zalberti, a Casey Powell, um, you know, those guys constantly have their defensemen off balance because of their hesitations, because of their changes of speed, because of their changes of direction. So uh, switching gears, what are your thoughts on the new rules? I love them. I mean, there's – well, I should say not necessarily as a blanket statement. I love the shot clock. Um, I, I think the reason I love it is because I think the ball should be shared by both teams more often throughout the course of a game. And I think this is going to help that. I know the premise of the rule. One of the, um, the main objectives of the new rule was to just take some of the um, – you know, subjectivity out of the officials' hands about what a team is doing when they're in the offensive end or towards the end of a game when, you know, they seem to pick up the pace in terms of when they're going to be calling a shot clock or a timer on. So, you know, that certainly did that. But it also, I think, puts us in a position to have a, a more level playing field in terms of shared possessions. I think it'll be great for the fans. I think it'll be great for the teams uh, to have to defend for a specific amount of time. I think you'll see the best product on both halves of the field uh, more often versus guys wearing down um, and, and making it more of a test of endurance. I think you'll get the very best. I think you'll also get a little bit more in transition um, in less in the sub game, which I think will make for a much better game. 
maybe less creative, um, less, less coaches involvement and more players involvement, which should be a good thing. Um, the downside of this is I, I'm not a big fan of the reset. I'm maybe one of the few here, but I don't think if you take an errant shot and hit the post or um, hit the goalie in the chest and the ball comes down that you should get a full 80 seconds. I wish, uh, and maybe this will be a, a product of this over time, that this will be another step or two down the road. But I think a team should get the ball for 80 seconds and take the ball down the offensive end. And I would consider a scoring clock. You either do or you don't. And when the clock is up, regardless of whether or not it was a shot and a rebound, um, your time is up. Now, if, if the possession changes, that's different. If the defenseman picks it up and then you get it back, yeah. that's different. But uh, So that part of the rule I like, uh, but I hope that this is the, the first segue into a – a stronger rule to keep more flow, keep the ball going up and down the field over and over and over again. It's just a different sport than basketball or box lacrosse where um, it is so challenging to put the ball in the basket, um, you know, with the defenders available and in box lacrosse with the goalie of, of that size and a shot clock of, of that magnitude where it's just much smaller. Right. It's just different. 80 seconds, I think, is just too yeah. long to give a team a reset for. Uh, dive. The dive I'm not a big fan of as much as it was a part of my game and our game when we played, and I loved it. Um, I actually don't think it's a great part of the game. I think we finally have just come to the um, the realization it's a challenging call to make when you're in around the crease, but it's there for a reason. It's like a sideline, and um, I do think it's I do think the danger of the of that particular move should far outweigh the excitement of what happens. And uh, I think it's going to create more confusion and more injury than excitement in the game. And that's, that's just an opinion, but we'll see how that one works its way out. And uh, so in, in terms of those, I know the box rule is another one that I'm not here or there on, but I think the biggest one, the shot clock is going to really, I don't know if it's going to speed up our game, but I do think it's going to allow for just more possessions offensively, more possession defensively which I think will become a better game for both the teams playing and a better product for the fan experience. Yeah, I think it's going to be better for the fan experience. And I think it'll be more fun to coach in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, when you would watch a game and you'd be like hitting the fast forward button until they did something and you'd yes. be doing that a lot on every possession. You just don't have to do that anymore. The game, you get over, you sub as quick as you can to maximize your time and you get to work. And it's uh, a great point. It uh, makes it a little bit more fun. It, do, do you think that there's going to be – you know, more, more teams pressuring, more teams playing zone, uh, quicker slides because there's not as many dummy dodges. I mean, how do you, you know, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of different people doing different stuff, but what's your sort of take on some of that? It, it's funny. Like, I, I've talked to a lot of people about this very question. I don't think people are going to change to the majority of the possession. And say, people have talked about, well, people would just jump into the zone. And I would say, well, why didn't they zone before? It's right. like, it's not all of a sudden like you become a successful zone team because they have 80 seconds. You either do or you don't. And someone's going to shoot the ball at your goal. You better make a save, whether it's a man or a zone. I do think there are nuances toward the end of possessions, whether it's a shot out of bounds that maybe you think twice about going back into man, man to man, because you know, if you can just, you know, you can survive through the last 12 seconds more organized in a zone than a man, you know, in case they come kamikaze or it's more challenging to shift into a zone offense or to organize that. I think that stuff will happen. Um, but there's far more positives than negatives. I think the way people play defense, this is an opinion, and I may be totally surprised by this, is going to be fairly similar. Um, but I think the, 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 the way you use your personnel, maybe offensive guys, you're more um, – more in, in inclined to put them back in the defensive end because you know it's only for 
60 seconds versus before you would just run them off the field to make sure that a defensive guy goes on the field. And I think that's good for the game, not bad for the game. I don't think, I don't think there will be drastic changes defensively. And I may be surprised by this, but I don't think there'll be drastic changes to the majority of the possessions that take place throughout the course of the game because the shot clock. Yeah, I agree. I think the only thing is when you think about pressure, um, you know, it, you, you can only sustain pressure for so long if they can just kill it all day long. And so whereas now, you know, if you want to crank up the pressure on somebody, you know, you're only going to have to do it for a maximum of whatever, 60 seconds or 50 seconds. And so there's yeah. going to be some opportunity for that. Um, do you see the, the, the 20-second riding opportunity as going to be uh, – uh, you know, do you see people getting, getting off the field as fast as they can? Or do you see them trying to take advantage of the fact that everybody got pretty comfortable with throwing three or four overpasses before they – you know, while they subbed and, and got, a, got their clear out? You know, I, I will say this. The, the 20 seconds goes by quicker than you think. You know, I know having 30 seconds and sometimes not having the ball across the midline yeah. and still being able to get the ball inside the box in, you know, five or six seconds was a luxury. So that 20-second shot clock does seem to wind down fairly quickly if you're not urgent, organized um, on, on possessions. I still don't think it's going to change a lot. I think a trend of our game is the 10-man rides becoming more of, you know, kind of a trendy – um, you know, situation. I think Yale did a pretty good job. Sometimes they would go into a 10-man. Sometimes they would just, you know, kind of pressure up on the ball. Um, and typically when somebody wins a championship and, and they're doing something, it, it tends to be the the trend that we all want to follow. But I know that that's happened in the last few years, and, and I do believe that that's going to be um, something that picks up more so than I think zone defense. I do think pressure rides are going to be more relevant. And again, I think it's all really good for the game. Let's pick up the pace of the way we're playing it and see if kids can handle it on their own without as much direction, um, you know, from the grease board coach. And, you know, I want to coach as much as anyone else does in terms of the situation, but I really do think this is going to allow for um, situations that are taking place on the field at real time for me. And I've said this before, there should be no timeouts during the course of a game. If you want to put one in in the last two minutes, because you want to make that exciting, I think that's great. Kids should have to make decisions on their own throughout the course of the game. That doesn't mean I'm not going to go through a course of the game and not use them. If we have them, I will use them. But I think the game will be more exciting if we just allowed it to play out. There's a clock that's on there for a reason. Let it play out. If the ball goes out of bounds, there's a stoppage of play. If it doesn't, let the kids play. Um, so I think some of these things will do just that. A little bit more pressure in the ride and clear. A little bit more, you know, pressure or premise on the amount of time that you have the ball in the offensive end or defensive end, all those things I think are going to be great for the game. No doubt. I think you got to get it up and out a little quicker too, which is going to add a little pace to the game perhaps. That Last topic, Tambo. Um, for, the, for the parents that are out there on this listening to this, I've had a lot of parents listen because they're just really interested. You know, their kids play lacrosse. What's your, what's your advice on, on the, uh, in, the, in the state of the world of recruiting right now and your advice to – to kids and parents as far as, you know, what, what it takes, um, you know, to try to, to get to, to the level that you're coaching at right now. For me as a – I'm sorry, Jamie. Where I am as a coach or those guys to, to recruit as a – to be a Division one lacrosse player? So basically your advice, you know, basically there's just an awful lot of advice on, you know, how you get to that next level and just to give some – any sort of advice to, 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 to parents to basically mentor their own kids because yeah. they're – not to make you know, podcast, there's quite a bit of parents. You know, it's been an interesting perspective for me, and you and I share this. 
um, you know, having kids, it's, you know, being a coach is one thing. You're sitting on one side of the desk or you're having recruiting conversations. And then, you know, my oldest daughter is 17 years old. She's a junior in high school. And the next thing you know, I'm on the other side of the desk. I'm sitting in a chair and we're listening to coaches present their, their opportunities. And, and I have found, um, you know, through this, the reality, how little I know what it's like to be on that side. Um, we, we have a kind of a professional take in terms of what it means to be a recruiter. Um, and I empathize with, with parents and um, prospects these days because I think it's a daunting task to look at. But what I have found is this. It's just not scientific. You can't look at one person's journey and say, well, that's the way it should be because it happens different to every single young man in the country, whether it's a different um, recruiting service they used or recruiting tournament they went to or, or club team that they went to or no club teams or no high school teams from Canada to the U.S. It's, it's just completely different. I would just say that um, it's got to be a two-way street so that it's not don't just wait for the coaches. You should be active in this approach. You're trying to find a partner. You're trying to find a partner for your son or for your daughter. So be active in your approach. And then just have an understanding when you're going into this. And I had the same conversation with my daughter. What is it that you're looking for? So if you say you're going in to look to be a college player, what is it that you're looking for? What, what's important to you as a parent? You know, is it a role model? Is it close to home? Is it expense? Make sure that those questions are answered in the forefront. Um, and that'll help you pare down what you're looking for. And as kids too, um, regardless of how old you are, if you want to be involved in the process, you better know what process you're getting yourself into. So what is it that you're looking for as well? What kind of a lifestyle in school? Um, what kind of a school in general? What kind of academics? What kind of geography? Um, you know, you may not know the answers to all those questions, but at least have a starting point. And then I would just say is allow the process to unfold. Once there is a two-way street where your parents are involved, the prospects are involved and the coaches are involved, um, you got to allow the process to unfold in terms of that partnership and be patient with it because, you know, the reality is, is that there's not a Division One lacrosse spot for everyone out there. Um, and there may not be a Division Three lacrosse spot for everybody out there. But um, if you want to work hard enough and, and to have an idea about what you're looking for, um, you're patient enough with the, with the process. Um, and you can develop a decent enough partnership with, uh, with the college coaches that are out there. Um, there may be an opportunity for you, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's not for everyone. And I think that's something that people get so caught up in with these Division One or Division Three opportunities. And um, so stay the course and um, enjoy the process as you're going through it. But understand this, that there, there is not one answer that can probably provide you with this is exactly how to do this. There's more general guidelines about looking into your life and just saying what's important in your family room. What is important when you're in your kitchen and make sure that those qualities and characteristics are as important to those coaches or those schools. Once you find that, I think your compass will be a lot easier. Your journey will be a lot easier because you'll be able to eliminate a lot of schools, a lot of coaches that don't believe in what you believe in and go try to find out, uh, you know, if there are any coaches out there that not only partner or pair with what you believe in, but if there's an opportunity available based on the skill set that your son has, not just as a, as a player, but in terms of the personality that he'll add value to that locker room as well. It's awesome advice. Tambo, I really appreciate you coming on uh, the podcast and uh, wish you the best of luck. Please say hello to Shell and the family and uh, let's be in touch. And hopefully I'll see you at the uh, convention in December. Yeah. Great, Jamie. Thanks so much for having me. All right. See you, Jeff. Thank you. Bye. See you, Jamie. Amen. Thank you. 
The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by JM3 Sports. Go to www.jm3video.com to get more information on the JM3 Video Assessment Tool.